0: All right, so we're going to jump into the Word here. And we're going to jump in at um, Luke chapter 11. And we're going to get in about, we're going to get at verse 14. That's where we're going to get in. Amen? So here we go. Now he, he being Jesus, was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said he drives out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, and others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and a house divided against itself fails, falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebub. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. I want to talk to you this morning from the the concept of kingdoms in conflict. Father, we bless your name. we thank you for we thank you for this opportunity to come into your presence. We thank you that we live in your presence, but there's something about coming together corporately father where you come amongst us that is very special and dear to us Uh, we like our private time with you you know we love that private time but we'd like to come together with our brothers and sisters and hear your word and hear your voice to have you pour into our lives so we thank you for for Christ Center Church we thank you for our pastor we thank you for all those that we gather with Lord God we thank you for your word which changes our life, which convicts us, which sets us free, which instructs us, which strengthens us, which guides us, Lord God. So this morning, Lord God, I surrender my vessel to you. I ask that you would hide me behind the cross so they see your face and they hear your voice, because you are the one who changes people. You are the one who saves lives. You are the one who sets people free. So speak, use me, bring all things back to my remembrance. Help me to paint the picture clearly, Lord God and give your people what they need to run on a little longer. In Jesus' name, amen. Oops. So, in this text, we have, well, this is a text that I can't say I've ever really studied out before in the Bible because of where it, where it sits in the storyline story of Christ. Because just before this takes place, Jesus goes off to himself to pray. After he finishes praying, his disciples come to him and ask him, teach us how to pray. And after that is where Jesus gives them the Lord's, teaches them the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, that prayer. So because it has this, because it has such a big event just before it, this this story right here kind of gets lost. So um, in this story, what we have is, like I said, Jesus has taught, the Lord's Prayer, and he has moved on to the next scene in his life, and in this scene, what he comes across is he comes across a man who is deaf and mute. Jesus is touched by by compassion for the man, so he heals the man. When he heals the man, there are people around who see this, and the majority of the crowd sees this as an amazing event, and they're in awe and and they wonder who is Jesus, but there are also others in the crowd who see this differently. So what we see is we see three different responses to, to Jesus, three different responses to miracles, three different responses to Jesus declaring who he is in the earth and declaring that the kingdom has come. You have some people who, like I said, some people who are in awe and some people who are amazed. We have some who flat out reject the idea that that this event even happened. Well, they don't, they don't necessarily reject the idea that this event happened, but they reject the idea that Jesus is who he says he is, which is the Son of God. So what they do, what those that reject him flat out, what they do is they say to him that the miracle that you just did, you've done through the power of Satan. There are a couple of things about that, however, and I love the way that Jesus comes back and responds to it, because he really starts breaking it down to him. And the first thing that he tells them is a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, and a house divided against itself cannot stand. He goes on and he, he breaks down further, and he says that if Satan is doing war against himself, then Satan's kingdom cannot survive. So it doesn't make sense that I would be working through the power of Satan in order to, in order to cast out this demon that Satan himself put in place. You follow me so far? It's the idea, when I think of that, I think of, the, uh, I think of uh, sports. Now, you know, a lot of us watch football and basketball, that kind of thing. And in football, you know, you have an offensive side and a defensive side. Well, if the offensive line, when the ball is hiked, if the offensive line steps aside or worse, turns on the quarterback, then they're certainly going to lose the game. And that's kind of the picture that Jesus is painting here. Now, I want you to understand that because that's important not just for the kingdom of God, but that's important for your own households. Your household will not be successful. Your, your marriage will not be successful. Your family will not be whole if mom and dad can't pull it together. So if mom and dad cannot get on the same page and work together, if they're fighting against each other, then that opens doors, doorways and opportunities for the enemy, enemy to come in and to destroy the household. The other thing about this text and the response that some of the people gave in opposition to the obvious miracle that Jesus has done, the thing that it points out is the hostile, the hostile nature of Satan when it comes to the kingdom of God. We have to understand that there is an adversary out there that he is pressing hard against the kingdom of God, that he is pressing hard against those in the kingdom of God, that he is doing all that he can to prevent the gospel from being spread. He is doing all that he can to paint the kingdom of God in the worst way possible. So as Christians, and here's my first point, as Christians or the church should never underestimate the level of a hostility it may encounter when attempting to carry out its redemptive mission. Let me say that again. You should be expecting, if you are walking, in the, walking out the purposes of the kingdom, you should be expecting for things to be pressing against you. You should not expect for things to be easier, for things that just necessarily fall into place, because there is an adversary, just like on the football field, you don't just move the ball down the field. There is something on the other side that is pressing against you to keep you from moving on. But we have something on our side that has overcome that, because even though Satan has put this demon in this man, Christ has come and taken him out and price. Oh, I'm gonna get ahead of myself, my notes here. Um, Even though um, Satan has put this demon in this man, Christ has come and set him free. Now, reading through the text, one of the things that stood out to me, if we can go back to verse, go down to uh, verse 21. Because I want to show you something. uh, yeah, Yeah, there we go. So when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. Uh, Keep going, next verse. But when one stronger than he comes on him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he has trusted. When I read that, um, I thought to myself, wow, Satan has armor? I never heard, never saw that in the Bible before. Now I know that we have armor, right? We have uh, the helmet of salvation, right? The breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the spirit. Shoes, we have all of those things, but I never realized the Satan had armor, so I started looking into it, and it turns out that he does. But his armor is very, very limited. Uh, If we go back, and we can see his armor in the text, if we go back to Genesis, and we see where he started. Because in Genesis, right, Adam and Eve, then the Satan comes along, and he tells Eve, he's talking to Eve, and he's telling her things that God told her, or he's asking her questions. You know, surely, you know, God said you could eat of all the trees of the garden. Eve comes back and says, yes, he says we can eat of all the trees in the garden except for this one, uh, unless we should surely die, and Satan comes back and tells her, you, sh- you won't surely die. That's not really what he said, that you, won't, that you will surely die. And he tells her, tells, goes on further to tell her that not only will you not die, but God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit because God doesn't want you to have understanding like him. Satan, the only, the only weapon that Satan has to use against us, and I don't want to make this message about him, it's really not. But I think this is an important point. The only weapon that Satan has to use against people is lies, is lies. That's what he's used all the way through the text, is lies. Even in here, when these people start talking about this this miracle that's occurred, they can't deny that the miracle happened because everybody saw it after after all the dumb man is talking. The guy who couldn't talk is talking now, so you can't deny that it happened. But so what he does is he takes it and he tries to turn it around and make it look like something that it isn't. Sort of like the same thing in the garden. So he tells them, so the people tell Jesus that you didn't do this by God's power, you did it by the power of the devil. There are other texts in the Bible that refer to Satan and talk about how he is, like uh, Revelation 27 and 8 says, uh, Now when the thousand years has expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out and deceive the nations. He's a liar. Uh, John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. But the believers have weapons that we use to counter that. Now the weapon that you use to counter a lie is the truth. That's why the Bible says that you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So here's the crux of it. Whenever the enemy comes to you with something that's not of God, first of all, you need to understand if it is of God or not. But when he comes to you if it is not of God, you can, I can guarantee you that it is a lie. When you hear that lie, you have to take that lie and apply the word of God to it, right? That's why the Bible says that we have to take every thought into captivity we have to pull down every thought, everything that exalts itself against the kingdom of God, against the word of God. The problem that most of us have when it comes to dealing with that is, we don't don't recognize when God is really working. The thing I like about pastors offering Abdomission is the fact that he recognized that God answered a prayer. The problem is that Because of the society that we live in and because of the way that we're programmed, because of the way that we're brought up, you know, many of us were taught to uh, be exceptional, to excel, to go beyond, to achieve, to accomplish. And all of those kind of things, and in being taught those things, I'm not saying those things are wrong, you certainly should do those things, but you have to recognize that none of that stuff happens without the power of God in your life. And the thing about it is that once you start seeing yourself as being the one that accomplishes those things, you start forgetting that it's actually the hand of God that creates these opportunities and opens these doors and puts you in these places. So you start to deny the power of God at work, and instead you start to call it something else. So you graduated from college, you got a good job, all those things are great. But if God hadn't opened those doors for you, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have occurred. So you... you You fail to recognize that going to college was the power of God, and you call it something else. You fail to recognize that making it through college and graduating was the power of God, and you call it something else. You fail to recognize that um, getting a good job and moving out on your own is through the power of God, and you call it something else. And here's, this is what I saw on my way in this morning. You guys know what kudzu is? Right, kudzu is a a vine. And I'm sorry if this sounds scattered. I'm going to pull it back together. Um, Kudzu is a vine. That's not indigenous to the United States. It was brought over here from Japan in order to put greenery along the sides of the interstates of in the United States. But it's a vine that is very fast growing. I mean literally it can grow a foot overnight. So if left to its own devices, it will just continue to grow and to grow. That's why you see it taking over trees. And once it covers a tree, the tree dies. Not because it's sucking the life out of the tree, but because the tree can't see the sun. But what kudzu does is it grows a foot. Sink's a root. Grows another foot, Sinks a root. Grows another foot, sinks a root. So you fail to acknowledge God here, a root is planted. You fail to acknowledge God here a root is planted. You fail to acknowledge God here and a root is planted. You acknowledge God here, but all of these other things have already taken place. So the seed, the roots are already in the ground. They're already in you. And in order to get back to the place where God and the truth of God is really at work in your life, you have to pull all those roots up. You have to pull all those vines up. You have to go back to where you started and recognize that, yes, the hand of God, the finger of God, as Jesus put it, has been at work in my life all along. The enemy has come to do two things. He's come to establish his kingdom. He is the father of lies. He is the father of darkness, and he has come to establish his kingdom with with that in mind. He has come to turn the hearts of the children of God from God for, because he wants your worship. He wants you to love him. But it's not just that. He wants to turn your heart from God to him because by turning your heart from, to, from God to him, he can hurt the heart of God. Do not be deceived that God is not hurt when one of his children turned it back on him, just like a parent would be hurt when one of their children turned it back on them. So the enemy is out here to establish his kingdom, to win worship so that he gets worship and to hurt the heart of God. We have to be wise to the activities of the enemy so that we can recognize him when he's presenting his lies so that we can deal with it from the truth of God so that we stay firmly in the kingdom of God. After Jesus heals the man, he tells them that I have healed him by the finger of God, which is, synonymous with the power of God. And then he tells them that because I've healed him with the finger, with the, through the power of God, that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God, wherever the power of God is, the kingdom of God is present. So if you want the power of God in your life, you have to, or if you want the power of God in your life, you have to be in the kingdom of God. You have to be connected to the kingdom of God. Here's what the Bible says about being connected to the kingdom of God. It says that in order to be in the kingdom of God, you have to abide. You have to abide. It says you have to abide in the word. The word will give you the truth of God. The truth of God will keep you in the kingdom of God. Yeah, there you go. Then Jesus said to them, said to the Jews who believed, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Does that go further? and then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So, in order to be free in the kingdom of God, you have to abide, which means that you have to spend time studying. You have to open your Bible and sit down and read it. You have to spend time with God. If you spend time reading your Bible, you spend time with God, you will abide in his truth, and by abiding in his truth, that will keep you in his kingdom, and by keeping keeping yourself in his kingdom, the power of God will be active in your life. The power of God is in your life to help you to see the truth, to help you to see where the enemy is, t- is coming from, to help you overcome it because we, you are, we are called to be more than overcomers. But we only do that through the power of God when we're in the kingdom of God. Amen? He says in verse 19, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason they will be your judges over you. I'd like the way that Jesus deals with situations, because we can learn a lot from it. Um, When it comes to dealing with these people who are coming against him, these people who want to tear him down, these people who want to call him uh, something that he's not, instead of getting upset and going left on them, he just starts asking them questions, because what he realizes is that during the time that all of this is taking place, Jesus is not the only one who is healing people. Um, there's texts to suggest that even that going even all the way back to Solomon that part of his knowledge was dealt with alchemy and incantations and things that he could use to heal people, so going all the way back to Solomon, these things have been around, so these these Jewish people that Jesus is talking to, um, they have sons and they have daughters that are doing the same kind of things. So we can learn something about dealing with difficult people from this text because we don 't always have to we don't always have to tear down in order to build people up or in order to correct people. If we, if we talk to them the right way and we use methods that Jesus uses, we can heal and keep people pulled together. We can bring people into the kingdom. Verse 29 says, and the crowds were increasing, but he began saying, this generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will become to this generation. So there were people that when Jesus did the miracle, there were three, three types of people. There were people who immediately accepted and wondered who Jesus was. There were people who came against it and called, said that Jesus was not of God, but that he was of Satan. And there were people who demanded a sign. And to the people who demanded a sign, Jesus tells them that the only sign that you will get would be the sign of Jonah. What he's talking about is, is Jonah in the well. Now, there's three things that we can pull out of that. The first thing is that, of course, Jonah was in the well for three days and then he went to Nineveh. Jesus was, in the, Jesus was giving a foreshadowing of the fact that he would be in the grave for three days and then he would come out. The second thing was that when, when Jonah went to Nineveh, he delivered the message of God and the people repented. The reason that Jesus calls these people evil is because even though they've seen Jesus do this miracle and even though they know that it occurred, they asked Jesus for a sign not out of of the spirit that they wanna know for sure that Jesus is who he is, but they're trying to prove Jesus wrong. So he's telling them that because of where your heart is and asking for a sign that um, you're gonna go the opposite way of the people in Nehemiah, you're gonna be condemned. and I think that that brings out something that we have to be careful about when it comes to when it comes to signs and miracles, because, you know, the Lord says, test me, try me. But our hearts have to be right when it comes to doing that. We can't test and try God for our own selfish reasons. We can test and try God in order to so that we can better understand who he is, but not just for our own self-benefit, um, And the thing is, the thing that you have to recognize here is that the sign that Jesus did did not get anybody saved because signs and miracles don't save people. Jesus saves people. So when it comes to signs and miracles, we have to understand that while while miracles, wild miracles can inspire faith, it really takes faith to see miracles. Let me say that again. While while miracles can inspire faith, it takes faith to understand miracles, to recognize what miracles are. Going back to my analogy of the kudzu, you know, it grows and it plants a seed because it wasn't recognized. It grows and it plants a seed because it wasn't recognized. Well, if you're going to recognize the power of God, you're going to recognize God working in your life. It takes faith to do that. Because if you don't believe that God is, then how can he possibly be working things in your life? If you don't believe that God is interested in your individual life, how can you possibly recognize it when he does move in your life? The way that you build your faith is to abide in the truth. So when something happens, like Pastor just said up here, you have to remember, you know, Pastor prayed for the car, the car came. Pastor circle back around and recognize that the car came because God answered his prayer. We can't be in such a rush in our lives that we move on from point A to point B, sinking roots in untruths, sinking roots in lies, or letting lies sink their roots in us. We have to be conscious of the fact that God is working in your life and that God is a miracle worker. The last thing that I want to talk about is this. There's a a text in Revelation that says, I don't know, you guys may be familiar with the text of Revelation where it talks about the seven seals. Amen? It says, when the seventh seal is open, that the kingdom of God will come on the earth. My question was, well, how can it say that the kingdom of God is going to come on the earth when the seventh seal is open, but Christ here is saying that the kingdom of God is wherever the power of God is. So does that mean that the power of God is not here? Or the power of God is coming? We live in a state where we are in between the come and the coming. The power of God has come, the kingdom of God has come, and the kingdom of God is coming. When Christ came the kingdom of God came with him. However, well, let me me describe it to you like this. It's like um, our elections for the president. We hold elections on the first Tuesday in October, and we choose who our president's going to be. From that point, he is president, and he starts setting up his cabinet. He starts pulling in all, all of his people together. But until January 20th, He's, well, on January 20th, he's sworn in as president. So the first Tuesday in October, he's elected president and he is president. So he is president, but then on January 20th, he is sworn in and he is president. So he is coming and he is, he has came. The point that I wanna bring out about that is, we oftentimes wonder, well, why don't, if the kingdom of God has come, Why do we still have struggles? Why do we still have pain? Why do things still happen in our lives? Why do people get sick? You realize that even the people that Jesus healed, the man in this story, Lazarus, all of them died. Well, in the kingdom of heaven, there is no death. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no illness. So we often wonder, how could it be possible that we live in this time with all of this pain and all this hurting? Well, it's because we're in the come and the have come. We're in between the come and the have come. So be encouraged that in the end, the kingdom of God will be here in its fullness. And what that's gonna look like, or what that's gonna seem like is this. I want you to get in your mind the uh, the best day in your life. The day where everything just seemed to work best. The day where uh, there was no struggle, there was no pain, um, there were no challenges, uh, life was just good. Now, there's been several days in my life where I could put that together, but I think probably the one, that comes the, most, the one that comes to my mind most strongly would be when Cynthia and I went on vacation last year. There was a day where we, um, we took a, a boat. We were down in the Dominican Republic, and we called a boat out a couple, a couple hours out into the uh, Caribbean Ocean. And while we were out there, what we did was they went out to a reef and we went snorkeling, which is just crazy fun. But when we left from there, well, it was crazy fun, except for, um, I'll tell you a funny story. Yeah, I'm going to tell on you, honey, I am. So <laughs> we get out to where we're going to go snorkeling, and the boat stops. You know, you have on all the gear and the, the life vest and, the, you know, that thing and all of that kind of stuff. Well, it had been several years since I had gone snorke- snorkeling out in open water like that. So when the guy said, you know, if you can't swim, which I can't swim, but if you can't swim, then hold on to this float and I'll take you around. So when I got into the water, I grabbed a hold of the float to kind of calm myself down because it's kind of a scary thing. Now, when I grabbed a hold of the float, I was the first one on it. I didn't realize that all these other women were going to grab a hold of the float. So next thing I know, I hear my wife's melodic voice <laughs> yell out, "David!" Why are you on that float with all those women? (laughs) It's still funny to me to think about. (laughs) And I guess her point was, you know what? If you drown, you let go of that float. Whatever it takes, you turn that float loose. (laughs) But I survived, and um, I guess that's pretty obvious. but after we did the snorkeling, we went to a little cove and we got out in the water, waters was about chest deep and we got a chance to play in the water and we did games and it was just a wonderful day. We went out to a, a rest floating restaurant and we had lunch over there, just, just a great day. So when I think of really good days, I think of days like that. If you take a day like that and you multiply it by a hundred or a thousand, you get the idea of what it will be like to be in the kingdom, of, to be when the kingdom of God has fully come because there won't be any pain, there won't be any sadness, there won't be any illness, there won't be any death. None of those things will exist. We will be in the presence of God and we will be worshiping God from that point on, not just for a day, but for all eternity. My question is, do you wanna miss that? Do you wanna miss that? We think of good days here on the earth as individual days, but eternity is a very long time. And when we get to eternity, there's only two choices. Either, like Jesus said in the text, Either you gather or you scatter. Either you're with me or you're against me. There's no in between. I get why the Bible says that he'd rather have you hot or cold, because if you're in, if you're in between, there's, there's nothing we could do for you. It's not a matter of choosing between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. That's not the choice you have to make. The choice you have to make is the kingdom of God, yes or no. Because if you don't choose the kingdom of God, if you don't choose to accept Christ, the only other answer for you is that you'll, be, you'll spend all of eternity separated from God. Now the Bible says that there's a hell, and they say it, that hell is a place, and it says that it's high. I don't know if that's literal, I don't know if that's painting a picture, but certainly nobody would want to miss all eternity in joy and the pleasure of, of the presence of God for the alternative.